Okay. Take two. All right, so we're starting in Romans 9, verse 17. And it says, For the, re- for the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. So again, we're picking up in the middle of something that we've been talking about for several weeks now. Um, Again, if you haven't um, listened to the other recordings, I encourage you to do that. But uh, tonight, specifically, we want to be talking about verse 17. It says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And so the reason why this is important is that what we're basically talking about here is the nature and character of who God is. Um, did I, So because the way that the, uh, the Calvinists interpret this verse, they interpret, this, interpret it to mean that God... Um, either from before Pharaoh was born, before the beginning of time, or some other point in history, God determined that he was going to raise Pharaoh up, that he was going to be the bad guy in this whole story, and that um, that uh, God predetermined that he was not going to let the Israelites go, and God predetermined that he was going to bring on all the plagues on him, and, and predetermined all this kind of stuff before Pharaoh was even born. And so we want to look at that and see if that's what God was really trying to say here, if that's what the writers of Scripture were were trying to say. And um, just like we've talked about several times before, if you really want to um, see what a a verse is talking about, especially one that is quoted from the Old Testament, the best thing to do is go to the very to the Old Testament where it was first spoken and, and see the context and how it was used there. So if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 9, which is kind of interesting that we're in Romans 9 and um, the original is in Exodus chapter 9. Right. I love it when I have I know, and it's almost the same actually <laughs> verses because... In Exodus 9, it's in, I think, verse, uh, in Romans 9, it's in verse 17. In Exodus 9, it's in verse 16. So, pretty interesting. Nine. Yes. So, um, and so, again, it just raises a bunch of questions. I mean, it's like, does this mean that God, what does it mean that God raised Pharaoh up? It says, does this mean that God raised him up from a child to be a Pharaoh? Um does it mean that before time began, God had already pur- uh, purposed to raise Pharaoh up to be the king? Um, you know, is it God's eternal decree and predestination of Pharaoh? Is it unconditional election, right? Mm-hmm. So all these things are tied into this. It's not just it's not just a separate thing, right? And it's all definitely tied into Romans 9. And just like we, we've talked about earlier when we were talking about Romans 9, because again, what the Calvinists do when they read Romans 9, they say that this is talking about individuals, right? That God individually uh, predetermined and pre-selected every individual that was going to be saved. And and they don't talk about the other side that, well, if God uh, predetermined and pre-chose every single human being that was ever going to be saved, 
And if God knows everyone, if God knows all things, then by the same token, God predetermined and pre-selected everyone that will ever go to hell. Right? So now, and the, the thing about it is, is that a lot of Christians, all, all that we do as believers is we just listen to what our pastor teaches us or what someone teaches us. And we're like, okay, that sounds good to me. Right? Like, I know so many people that say, well, I believe that once you're saved, you can never lose your salvation. And, and it's like, well, what do you base that on? You know, and if you, if you, if you begin to teach something against it, they'll say, well, the Bible says that, that no one can ever pluck me out of his hands or, you know, or that I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that means that, you know, that seal can never be broken. Well, is that really what the scripture says, right? Uh, one of my favorite teachers, one of his favorite state, uh, one of his favorite quotes is the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things. Like everything with scripture, everything with doctrine is just plain, right? Everything is just readily understandable. And if, if, if you have to, you know, if you can't understand it, then there's something wrong, right? And it's against, and the thing is, the simple fact of the matter is there's a lot of doctrine that is that way. There's a lot of, of, of things about the nature and character of God that, that are readily apparent, right? But then there are other things that you really have to dig, and, and that's the problem with a lot of us as believers is we don't want to dig. We just want to be told what to believe. And that's the problem, again, is because so many people have been taught, well, once you've been stamped by God, once you've received that seal, once he's, once you've said the sinner's prayer, nothing can ever change that. And so for a lot of believers, they don't have to live godly in any sort of way. They don't have to, um, they don't have to, there doesn't have to be any, any kind of change of lifestyle. There doesn't have to be any kind of change of thinking um, or anything like that. Because it's like, hey, I said that prayer, I'm good to go. It doesn't matter how I live, live my life. God, God's forgiven me. He's forgiven everything that I've ever done, everything that I'm doing, everything that I ever will do in the, in the future. Again, where is that in scripture? You don't see that in scripture, right? And even when it talks about our present sins, it talks about if we sin, we do have an advocate with the father. And if we go to him and confess our sins, then he will forgive us of those sins, right? And so God is not this like, oh, and that's the problem too, is that all of this makes God somebody who was in the eons of time, right? And that all of his dealing, you know, we, we talk about God being a personal God. Is he a personal God or is he a puppet master in the, in the sands of time before create, before anything was ever created? Did God determine everything that you will ever do? Everything that you will ever think. If that's true, there's no need for prayer, right? Why should I pray? Because God's already determined what he's going to do. Why should I witness to anybody? God has already determined who he's going to save, who he's not going to save, right? As the same token, if you're a Calvinist, you should never be upset about anything, right? If someone hits your car with their car, you should not be upset about that. God decreed that, right? <laughs> And, and it gets worse. It gets worse. I mean, these are light things, but you talk about rape, you talk about murder, you talk about, um, you know, serial killers and, and people who are insane and demon possessed and things. And, and, and we're saying that's God's will. Exactly. And, and I, honestly, I have read Calvinists that say Hitler was from God. Everything I almost happens. spit out my drink. 
everything happens for a reason. Right. And that's <laughs> and that's the thing. And and how many well meaning Christians will say that God everything happens for a reason or hey, God's got this, you know, and even stuff. people who might not even know what Calvin Exactly. Is. And that's the problem with us, is because we are like we, we believe we believe every wind of doctrine that comes around and just like James says, we're like ships being tossed to and fro because we have no firm foundation, we have no solid theology, we have no solid worldview. This is what I believe, and how does it link to these other things? Does everything does God have everything under control? What does that mean to say God has everything in control, you know? And, uh, you know, and, and the thing is, is they say that, that, well, this glorifies God. It glorifies God for, for, for bad things to happen. And, and, and somehow this gives him glory. And it's just, it's, it's, and that's the thing. I have, I've read the Bible from cover to cover, and I cannot justify that thinking with the Bible. Because the Bible, from, from beginning to end, the Bible is all about cause and effect. People do something, God rewards them. People do bad things, God punishes them. It's all about the choices that you make. And there's no way that you can ascribe these things to God. I'm just a puppet. If I take some hot water and pour it on my wife, it's because God caused me to do that. No, it's because you made that stupid choice. Right? It's like, you know, it's like they used to say in the 70s, well, the devil made me do it. Well, the devil doesn't deserve it either because the devil didn't make you do it either. He might put ideas in your head, but it's up to you whether you're going to follow that idea, whether you're going to give into it or not. And so the whole thing about it is, is it comes down to personal accountability and I am responsible for my actions and I cannot blame my actions on anyone else but myself. So and kind of feeding off of one thing that you had said. Uh, um, I'm forgetting the name right now, but a relatively popular uh, Reformed theologist said essentially that uh, God needs uh, the sin in the world to be a, basically a backdrop to his glory to show how glorious he is. But first, I don't want to say God needs something. And then second, the idea that God is somehow less glorious, if there's not sin right. that exists to contrast it with, yeah. is just, to me, blasphemous. Yeah. You know, and the thing about it is, is that's almost the same kind of the Star Wars theology, right? Mm -hmm. You have to have the light side and the and the dark side, and and you can't have one side without the other because they balance each other out. That's Buddhist theology. So yeah, okay. So Genesis chapter nine. Uh uh, Exodus. Exodus. Chapter nine. Okay, so we're just going to go back and look at this in Exodus, starting verse um, 15. He says, so now this is all after... Starting verse 14. Okay. But this is after several plagues had already happened, right? And in verse 14, it says, For this time I will send all my plagues on you, and, and Pharaoh had not relented. And it says, For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Now, in the New American Standard, it says um, that I have let you remain. 
okay? Um, some of the different versions, the New American Standard says, but I have raised you up for this purpose. Now, this is the scripture that Paul is drawing from in Romans 9, okay? So the New American Standard says, I have raised you up. The New Living, the New Living Translation says, but I have spared you for a purpose. Um, the King James says, and in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up. So, um, so we have, what we have here is a problem with language, right? And how to translate language and stuff. Because, um, so it's just the difficulties in translating languages. But you see, like the differences in language, like again, in the New American Standard, it says, For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain. But the King James and some other versions say that I, I raised you up for this purpose, right? And so we... Again, the Hebrew word meaning is what? Right. So this is again where just taking it for face value doesn't work. You have to dig into it. You have to try to go back to some of the languages and see what was he actually trying to say here. Because something's right, right? And something's not right. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to the original languages, um, let's see. What does the word remain mean in Hebrew? I'm looking for it. I'm looking in my notes. Remain means stand. Yeah, it means okay, to stand. Well, Very know. good. <laughs> what is it? And it's the same word used in verse 11 where it says the magicians could not yeah. stand before Moses. Hold on just a sec. Okay, so I went, like, I've got this hub on my, my phone that's called Bible App, and it's a really respected app. A lot of people use it because it has so much stuff on it. It's got, like, over 50 commentaries. It's got, like, 20-something different versions of the Bible and stuff. It has all kinds of, it has Strong's numbering systems. It has so much good stuff on it. If you guys, if you guys haven't tried it, you should definitely check it out because it is so good. And... And, and they have all these commentaries on it. And the commentaries that they have, are, I mean, are like people for, like Matthew Henry, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Wesley, people that are really, really respected, really well-known, people who, were, who really knew what they were talking about. So I looked this, uh, this, word, this word raised up in the, uh, in the, um, well, in the, um, in the commentaries, and I just wanted to read some of the commentaries. Um, it literally in the Hebrew, it says, I have allowed you to remain. And so again, that's, that's what the literal says. I have allowed you to remain. So when, when you think of raising someone up, it's like, how can I explain it? It's like, I am, I am lifting you up for a purpose, right? And it's, um, so, uh, so, so can I ask a question? Is it okay? Yeah. So my concordance says that, um, remain means to stand. Yeah. So which one is it? Well, it's the it's that's the thing. It's this it's the concept. I've raised you up so that so you I'm can remain, you, you can stand, stand and stuff. And you're not right. Yeah. So some of the commentaries. There's one called Ellicott's commentary that says, "I have made you to stand," and he says, "I.e., I have kept you alive." 
Okay. Uh, Benson's commentary says the Hebrew word here um, rendered raised up never signifies to raise or bring a person or thing into being, but it's, it's, it's always used to preserve, support, establish, or make to stand. Um, Proverbs 29, verse 4, and I'll just turn there. You guys don't have to. Well, clearly, too, while you're turning there, the, the, the four verses up in verse 11 where the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils on their skin yeah. was basically about standing in health, and it's the same Hebrew word there. Yeah. Well, and we look at the context too. Right. Like, right. Uh, before, it's talking about I. Uh, I could have killed you. Yeah, I could have killed you. And then afterwards, he says, "But still, you exalt yourself against my people." Yeah. Yeah. God's basically saying, like, to to me, it almost actually like, hey, Pharaoh might have actually had an opportunity here to repent. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we'll look at, and that's the context of Romans too, is that he used Pharaoh as an example, and so. And in Proverbs 29, verse 4, it says, The king gives stability to the land by justice. That word stability is the same word stands, right? So again, it's not this concept of before the foundation of the world, um, God you know, planned for this to happen and God caused this to happen and arranged for this to happen. Now, I'm not saying that God might not have known that it was going to happen, right? God has the ability to know all things. We know that, right? Um so he, he could have known everything that was going to happen. I'm just saying that God does not make people do evil things. Right? Amen. God does not make people do evil choices and stuff. God puts, you know, I, God does allow people to be in certain situations and they make their choices, right? Okay, so reading on, it says uh, the Septuagint translation, which the Septuagint is what the people in the New Testament probably read because it was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint translation and others rendered this to say, for this cause thou hast hitherto been preserved. So he's saying that God was preserving Pharaoh. Says the meaning of the passage is there is therefore is not that God brought Pharaoh into being or made him on purpose that he might be an example of his severity and vengeance, but that though Pharaoh had long deserved be to, to be destroyed, remember God had already poured out several plagues and stuff and said, you know, I could have already wiped you out. It says, yet God had spared him and made him exist for a considerable time to show his power by the signs and wonders which he wrought in the land of Egypt and by delivering his people at length in spite of all the opposition by Pharaoh. Um, Barnes notes on the Bible says God kept Pharaoh standing, i.e., in other words, he permitted him to live and hold out until his own purpose was accomplished. So, uh, and again, just like you said in Exodus 9, verse 11, it says, The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. So, I mean, it's not saying that God, before the creation of the world, was good, you know, causing the magicians not to be able to stand, right? Right. So, again, so when you go to the original and you look at what it's trying to say, it's, it's trying to say um, that the, the meaning of the word is, is saying that God raised Pharaoh up. It's, 
how can I say this? It's saying that God is using Pharaoh as an example. Okay? He's showing to all the world his abilities that that he's having mercy. Uh, turn back to Romans chapter 9. Because it shows, it actually says the reason why he did it. He had mercy on Pharaoh like four times. Yeah. And even if we... Oh, a lot further, more than four times. Oh, Pharaoh, like, there like the 10 places? Yeah. Well, it, I mean, even if we read further in that same chapter, uh, it showed that Pharaoh did for a period of time repent and then hardened his heart again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. After which... Yeah, four times he gave him mercy and he hardened mm-hmm. his heart again. Yeah. Yeah. So in uh, Exodus chapter... Or, Romans 9, verse 22. He says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for the destruction? So what's he saying? God was having mercy on Pharaoh, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that exactly what he's saying in context? He's saying God could have destroyed Pharaoh, could have wiped him out, but he had mercy on him. In verse 23, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he also called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And so if you look at it, God is showing that God was having mercy on Pharaoh. God didn't raise Pharaoh up to be some kind of a whipping boy, right? (laughs) You know, and that's the the thing. Is God a bully? Does he, you know, it's like, does God need to pick on people weaker than he is? God doesn't, right? And so, you know, a lot of people teach that, you know, again, that God raised Pharaoh up um, to be this wicked person that God... um, predestined him to be this wicked person so that he could punish him when the truth is actually the opposite the truth is is that god was having mercy on pharaoh and so we see that uh, that he did it for two reasons number one was to show his um just like it says in verse 23 he to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy who's that his people right um, and the Egyptians were trying to get them. Right, that's the other mm-hmm. one. But the first one is showing mercy on his people. Turn to Joshua chapter 2. Because the book of Joshua was what? 40 years later, right? But look at it in chapter 2, verse um, verse 9. So we know the story about when, when, the, when the Israelites were going to go into the promised land. They sent out spies, right? And, you know, two of them went to Rahab and they, Rahab the, the harlot, and they said, we're going to come in and, and take your city, basically, and stuff. In verse 9, it says, um, so this is what Rahab is saying to them. Verse 8, it says, Now before they lay down, so Rahab is hiding them from the people that live there, right? He says, And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Listen to this. He says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed it. 
When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Awesome. You see that? So part of the thing that God was doing, his people were going into a strange land. His people were going into a foreign land and basically they were, they were the minority. And God was giving them a reputation and God's basically saying, I'm going to be your bodyguard. Right. I was listening to this uh, preacher on, on the radio today and he was talking about how he was going to this really tough inner city school in New Jersey or something like that. But he had a cousin that was like a gang member. And, and he, he was talking about how he was really scared to go to school that, that first year because, you know, people had a reputation for beating up the new guys and stuff. And his cousin told him, if anyone gives you a hard time, you just tell them that I'm your cousin and they'll leave you alone. <laughs> and essentially, that's what God's doing with his people. Well, and right? that happened a lot. He's given them a reputation. Yeah. He's given his people a reputation that you don't mess with these people because God is with them. Right? Mm -hmm. So again, because they were a minority people, they were coming into a land that was filled with ites, Hittites, Jebusites, Canaanites, all these people that wanted to kill them. They were very wicked people. Right. And, but God was giving them a reputation. Turn to Joshua chapter 5. In Joshua 5 verse 1, it says, Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the, Jordan, beyond the Jordan to the west. And again, this is 40 years later. Right? These people are still telling stories about what God did for them. And, and how God was their protector. Say, when it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel that until they had crossed that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in, in, in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. So again, God was protecting his people and saying to the world, through the judgments, through the plagues, through the things that he did to Pharaoh, he was letting the world know that God is with this people. These are my people. Don't touch them. Right? And this, is, this has application towards the New Testament people of God too. Right? When Paul's writing this, he's also saying God is with these people. Because, again, he's talking about this, this whole contrast in Romans 9, how the Jews had rejected their Messiah, right? And we were talking about this church that looked like it was about to die at any point. But Paul is saying God is with them. Amen? So, and the other part of that was that in verse 20... Uh, it says uh, in, in 22, it says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So the other thing was, is that God was showing mercy to Pharaoh and to Egypt and wanting them to repent. During the second Peter 3, verse 9. And that's the thing. Over and over and over in the Old Testament, you know, again, we are, there's people that always talk about how the God of the Old Testament was this hard, angry God, ready to throw his wrath and, and his anger and stuff like that. Oh, if you read it properly, over and over in the Old Testament, you see God, a God who is full of mercy, who is full of compassion, who had every right to destroy people, but he relented and he didn't. And, and the thing is, is it, even like with Saul, King Saul, um, 
It was 40 years after Saul said, I'm going to replace you with someone else, with David. And Saul let, and God allowed him to stay because he was wanting him to repent, right? God, God poured out 10 plagues on Egypt. And again, God could have done it all in the first time, right? God could have easily wiped them out in the very beginning, but he didn't. And in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, it shows why. It says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And again, this is the heart of God, Old Testament, New Testament. The Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? The God of the Old Testament is not a different person from the God of the New Testament. He is the same God. He is the same person. So, you know, we need to change the lens through which we read the Bible. Because again, we've been taught by certain people to look at the Bible through these certain lenses, and that's what we look at instead of reading it and letting it speak for itself. But it says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9 that when God is patient, it's because he's not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Amen. Right? God doesn't want to destroy anybody. God did not want to destroy Pharaoh. God doesn't want to destroy anyone. He wants all to repent. He wants all to not perish, right? And again, this goes against Calvinism too, because again, they say, well, well, this applies to only the elect, right? And they'll take scriptures where it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And basically they change it to say, God so loved the elect that he sent his own son. And they'll take verses like this and say, well, this is applying only to the elect. Well, but it doesn't say that, right? And you have to read that into it. And that's the problem is that we read verses into Scripture because we want to change them to say what we want them to say. Um, and he's quite clearly showing us, God's quite clearly showing his heart there that he doesn't right. want anyone to perish. Yeah, and it even said that in 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 um, Exodus 9. It's like, I could have, I could have wiped you out if I wanted to. Or how about Jesus? How many times have I wanted to gather you like a mother hen gathers her, you know, chicks? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Turn to Second Timothy chapter 2. Good. And he wept over them, right? Second mm -hmm. Timothy chapter 2 verse 1. Actually, it's 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, it says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority. So that would include Pharaoh too, right? For kings, for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, look at this, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So this is inclusive, completely exclusive. God is not um, trying to hold anybody back, right? And this is what Scripture says. This is not what John Calvin says or what Augustine said. This is what the Bible says. And it doesn't say God desires only the elect to be saved. He wants all people to be saved. And so it's not like, and so that by itself agrees completely with the, with the 
concept that God did predetermined that a certain select people were going to be saved and the rest of them were going to go to hell. Because that's not what scripture says. And so you look at these things and you've got, you've got a dichotomy here. You've got, well, I've got this doctrine that says this, but then the Bible says this. What do you go with? All right? And so, and so that's the thing is we got to, when we come to the Bible, we have to read it and allow it to speak for itself and not to try to make it says, say anything else. In Ezekiel 33 verse 11, it says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so the thing, the, the fact of the matter is God wanted Pharaoh to repent, but he wouldn't. And so God used him as an example to the nations, which God has every right to do. Right. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. God willing. Uh, in James, it says, uh, don't say, well, this week we're going to go here and we're going to do this and stuff. And, and I, I think I'm learning to say that because I always say, well, next week we're going to study this. And then two or three weeks go by and <laughs> nothing happens. And so, yeah. So God willing, next week, we're, we're going to talk about hardening. And what does it mean to be hardened? Because, again, they say that God raised Pharaoh up. That God predetermined that Pharaoh was going to be this wicked, ungodly man, and that that God hardened his heart. Can you give us a sneak preview of hardening? Well, <laughs> that's yeah. that's my number one question. Yeah. And you just can't leave me in suspense <laughs> for an entire okay. God-filling seven days, yeah. maybe well, 59. Well, when it comes to hardening, the Bible talks about God hardening people. It talks about people's hardening themselves, right? It talks about people being hardened by sin. And it talks about people being hardened by careless, carelessness, right? Yeah. The seed that fell on the, the stony ground and the cares of this world and the, the things like that choked it out, right? And so basically, and what does it talk about? It says that their hearts were hardened. What is your heart? Your heart is your will, your mind, your, your, your deepest thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Um, Basically, just kind of as a general thing, God will allow you what you want, right? And the simple fact of the matter is we all have hardened hearts towards particular things. And sometimes that's a good thing, right? Like uh, you, your heart can be completely hardened towards abortion, right? Like my heart is completely hardened towards abortion. Now, that doesn't mean that my heart is hard towards people who get abortions or abortion doctors or anything like that. But my heart is hard against the, the concept, the thought of abortion, right? My heart is set. My mind is fixed. This is wrong. And there's nothing that you can do to change it, right? But my heart is soft towards the babies, right? And so that's the thing about hearts. It's like while your heart is hard against something, it's soft against it, uh, something else. That's why Jesus said you can't serve two masters because you will love one and you'll hate the other. Right? And that's why if our hearts are soft towards God and the things of God, we hate the things of the world and the things of the world. If our hearts are hard towards God, we love the things of the world. Does that make any sense? I'll give an example of just... There, there's a, well, it's not a total example, but kind of what you were saying with God will let you have what you want. And it's not, it's not that he's planning for you to be rebellious, but if you're going to be, he will often allow you to be. And for example, when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, his own kids, when they wanted quail, 
It's like, and they wouldn't shut up about it. God let them have the quail. He sent it down yeah, it in buttloads. He sent them so much it's quail that they were sick of it. But so, so there are, there are those times when we want something so bad or we, we want to rebel so bad that he's like, fine. And he allows the circumstances to, to, I think in a way it allows us, he does that to allow us to, to get a grasp on the exceeding sinfulness of sin and on how mm. without his help and his mercy, we would be fully given over to certain things, you mm. know? And so because they wanted it and it was in their heart and they weren't going to give up until they got it. He's like, fine. you know? Yeah. Like, it's kind of like, I don't know, like if you're a parent and your kid, you know, is driving you up the wall about wanting your his fifth candy bar of the day. And you're like, that's going to make you sick. I really don't want to give that to you. It's going to make you sick. And they just won't stop throwing a fit. And you know it's going to make them throw up. But you're finally like, you know, you're having a hissy fit. Here, take this stupid candy bar. And they throw up. <laughs> you yeah. know? It's kind of like it shows us, oh, you know, this yeah. really wasn't what I wanted. Yeah. And essentially your heart is basically your attitudes. It's the same thing as like over and over in the Old Testament. It would talk about people who were stiff-necked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's the same concept. You're stiff-necked. And, and, I mean, you think about the, the, the thought of being stiff-necked. It's like, no, this is what I want, and you can't mm-hmm. make me, you know, mm-hmm. you can't make me change my mind. And yeah. that's, that's the thing. That's it's like Pharaoh when you're talking at. about Pharaoh, it's like you, people want, just like Amy was talking about, and even Romans 1, it talks about how people gave them over to, to immorality and stuff, so God gave them over <laughs> and stuff. And it's like... You you can have what you want. And if you are dead set on pursuing something, God will allow you to have that. If you and, and think about the Egyptians too. Like all the plagues that happened to the Egyptians were basically a, a slap in the face of one of their gods. Yep. Right? And stuff. And and it's like Pharaoh, most people a lot like even think of the pharaohs they they built monuments to themselves huge pyramids and and things like that used slave labor and stuff like that we're gonna we'll look at it pharaoh himself before ever talking about you know him hardening in his heart what did he do he tried to have all the males killed all the babies right he tried to have all the children put to death and stuff and so and he kept the the israelites in slavery right so he was a wicked person on his own right and God essentially just let him be wicked, right? And it does, did say before before it ever says, you know, God hardened his heart. It said Pharaoh hardened his right. heart. Right, exactly. And stuff. And so, again, it's just a, it's a progression and stuff. You know, it's just like with any kind of sin, you know, it's like people, most, most of the people or a lot of the people that do crack started out with wheat, right? And it's like, well... Okay, after a while, the weed's not enough, so, you know, I need something else. And so you go to crack, you know. And, and you know, that's a progression. With sin, it's never enough. You always want more. And so you're, you're softening yourself more and more to sin, but you're hardening yourself more and more to God. And, like, even with us, before we, began, we got saved, my heart was hard towards God. I wanted nothing to do with God. I wanted nothing to do with anything about God. And things, and it's only as his spirit dealt with me, and it's you know, it's only 
as he began to change my heart and and change he changes our hearts he changes our desires right but we have a part to play in that and that we have to allow him to do that or we can fight against that we can resist it and again you see that over and over in the bible too why are you why are you resisting the holy spirit so Mm -hmm. Um, so I did want to talk about, because there are people, someone might bring up the argument, well, what about people like John the Baptist who was called, or if you will, raised up before he was even born, right? So there were lots of people in the Bible who God called or raised up or used for his purposes, but even so, like even even Jesus, Jesus was called <clears throat> according to God's purposes, but he still had a choice to make when it came to the cross, right? So did Solomon. Right, Solomon, all these people, and that's, again, the story of the Bible is that people were given choices by the, and, and it, especially in Romans 9, because in Romans 9, he's talking about, again, the Jewish believers were upset because the, were, they were totally getting away from the Jews as a people being the chosen people of God. And now it was believers, people who, who of faith who are now the chosen people of God. And, and the Jews had a problem with that. And they're like, this is not right. You can't do that and stuff. And so this is what Paul is talking about. But the reason why that happened is because they weren't pursuing it by faith, right? Because now, and, and this is the thing, now Israel had become Pharaoh. And now Israel was persecuting the church, right? Over and over in the New Testament, who was it that was persecuting the church? It was the Jews, right? It says over and over that it was the Jews that were persecuting the people of God. So I just wanted to look at just some of those examples. We know about Jeremiah in, in chapter 1 of Jeremiah. It says, I've called you from the womb to be a prophet. Um, I'll go ahead and turn there. You can if you want to. Yeah, you don't have way. to. Jeremiah 1, verse 4. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, because I do not know how to speak, because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you will go, and and all that I command you, you will speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And then... um, Let's see, verse verse 17. He says, now, and this is God still speaking to him. He says, now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them or I will dismay you before them. And so over and over in people that God called, even Moses, when God came to Moses and said, I'm going to use you to lead my people out of bondage. Moses is immediately, no, you can't use me. I've got a speech impediment. I've got all these problems and stuff. You, you use Aaron, you know, and stuff. And, and God's like, no, I have chosen you. Right? So the Bible is filled with, with cause and effect. God chooses people to do things. They either obey him or they disobey him. God called Samson to be a prophet, to be a judge to the nation and stuff. He told Samson, he even told uh, Samson's parents, look, he's going to be a Nazarite from his youth, uh, from, from, you know, even before he was born. So 
the the goal for Samson would have been to obey God in all of his ways, to do everything in his his ability to please God, but he didn't, and it became a snare to him, right? Mm. Jonah, God called Jonah to be a prophet to Nineveh. And what did Jonah do? He's like, no, I'm going to Tarshish. And so the Bible is filled with examples of people that called, people that God raised up. Some of them obeyed, some of them disobeyed. Or even you could say predestined. Right. You could say that he predestined them because he did call people from even before they were born. John the Baptist, he was John the Baptist, he was called to be the forerunner of Jesus. But then he gets thrown in prison and he sends word to Jesus' disciples and says, Are you the one that's coming? Or do we need to look for somebody else? And this is after John had baptized Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now he's thrown in prison. He's like, I don't know about all this stuff. Right? So just kind of the, the joke, maybe that they're predestined for good things or whatever. But what's interesting about all that is, is if God was going to, you know, predestine anyone or whatever, it would be for the mercy. It would be, and if you, what Jesus said, many are called but few are chosen. So it's like he calls many, many people into great things. He calls David. He calls Solomon. He calls, you know, he calls lots of us into great things. But it's up to us to make the choice whether we're going to follow through. Solomon didn't follow through. He wrote an amazing, one of the most amazing books in the Bible of Proverbs. And a lot of people don't even know that Solomon fell away from the Lord in his latter part of his life. And, um, and, but and it's in the Bible, <laughs> and and so basically it's like we we have the choice of whether we're going to carry on. He clearly calls us, and it's humbling too because um, we were at Zach Poonin's church not too long ago, and one of the speakers was saying about how just how we can take it for granted that maybe we did something great for God back in two thousand and ten, and so we're kind of riding off that because we prayed for some person and they got raised from the dead or something crazy like so we just think we're we're all that you know we don't really consciously think we're all that but in our subconscious we're thinking we're all that because man look what we did back in 2015 but the humbling thing about what the way the bible really is is that god don't look at what you did a long time ago god looks at what are you doing right now yeah you know and so that's scary you know we should walk in the fear of the lord because he's not looking at what you did last year or the year before that, he's looking at where you are now. By the same token, he's not looking at what what wife you abused a year ago. If you've repented and you've gotten right with God, your slate is clean and yeah. he's forgiven you. So he, you, we live before him in the present. And that is the thing. There is that aspect where God does completely wash away your he sins. He does. There is no aspect of it. Absolutely. With, but that is if you're walking in repentance, yeah. if you're truly turning away from it, right. then yes, God does do that. Mm-hmm. And just some other examples. In in First Samuel 9, God chose Saul, raised Saul up from among all the tribes of Israel to be king over Israel. And then in First Samuel 15, he says, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned his back from following me. And again, all this is based on obedience and disobedience. Does that mean God made a mistake? Well, and the thing is, the thing about it is, is what kind of weird God would it be that's like doing this? Well, 
I predetermined Saul to be rose up, raised up, but then I predetermined him to fail. And I mean, it's just crazy. It's ludicrous. And then, yeah, and then I predetermined myself to be angry because he failed and stuff. Yeah. And it just, it makes no kind of sense whatsoever. Like the people before the flood, God raised, God raised up mankind. Right? He raised mankind up through Adam to walk with him in, and to be, to be, uh, to bear his image and to be his representatives on earth. But mankind came to the point where it says all the, all the, there was only evil continually in all their thoughts. And God says, I regret that I have made man. So again, if you believe in this kind of thing, how does this jive with scripture? You know, what kind of weird God is is this puppet master? It's like, well, I made man, but now I regret that I made man. How can you regret it if you you predetermined that that was going to happen? And how can you do all that if you're a perfect God who doesn't make mistakes? Right. (laughs) And that's the whole thing about it is because... They say that it's this glorious God that doesn't make mistakes. And, and if there if something and they, I hear it all the time, I hear it all the time. You can't go against the will of God. And if you read the Bible, it's filled with people who have gone yeah. against the will of God. It's packed with people who have gone against the will of God. And the thing is, is they say, well, if you could go against the will of God, that that makes God somehow less glorious, less sovereign, which is completely actually opposite of the truth. Because God did not create us to be robots. He created us to walk with him and to choose him out of love. And if if he made us to be robots, then that means he's a control freak and that he's this tiny person that has issues because he's so afraid that these people are going to do their own thing that, oh my gosh, I must control everything that they do. That is not glorious. Any control freak that you know has got serious esteem problems. God does not have esteem problems and it's glorious in the fact that he built into mankind the ability to rebel against him. And that I don't, and, and that I, I'm not going to love God because he programmed me to do it or because he's like got me with a puppet on strings and stuff and he's commanded me to do it, but because I choose to do it. And again, in, in a marriage, it would break down completely if, you know, I love my wife because she's giving me drugs or something, you know. And uh, honestly, uh, there are lots of marriages like that where, where a, a woman's with a guy because he's got money or something like that. And, but it still doesn't create love, right? Or a guy's with a woman because she's a supermodel or something. It still doesn't create love. We love him because he first loved us, not because he programmed us to love him. It's a response. Yeah. Our love for him is a response. It is not something that's programmed. What were you going to say, Daniel? Uh, I don't know. Okay. Even Jesus in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to go to the cross. Matthew 16, 21. It says, from this time, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this will never happen to you. 
But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus came to die on the cross, right? Jesus knew that he was going to the cross. He knew that he was going to die on the cross. He knew that it was the Father's plan and that it was the way of salvation. Turn to um, Hebrews chapter 5. What's your point there? I'm fixing to show you. Oh. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26 first? Yeah. Matthew 30, uh, 26 verse 36. This is the night before Jesus died. It says, And Jesus came with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Look at this. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus knew that he was destined for the cross. But in this moment in Gethsemane, he's praying. And he's like, if there's some other way, let it be. Right? So even in this, we see that even at the cross, Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, had to make a choice right here and now. Am I going to follow what God is calling me to do or am I going to rebel and do it some other way? And that's exactly what Jesus, uh, what Satan was tempting Jesus with his temptations, right? If you worship, if you bow down before me, I'll give you everything. And basically he's saying, here's a shortcut. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to go the way of suffering. You don't have to go the way of pain. You don't have to go the way of the Father. Why would Satan do that if Satan knows that God has predestined everything? If God has set everything in stone, you can't change the will of God. You can't go against the will of God. Why would Satan bother tempting Jesus? And if Jesus never had any choices... And how is Peter a stumbling block to him when he says right. what he said? And why is Jesus praying to his father to give him the strength to do it? Mm -hmm. Because he is being tempted in that moment to not do it. Right? And so again, when, when and God raised Jesus up, right? God raised Jesus up to be the man, to be the one who would make everything right. So... When we read Romans 9, when, when we, yes, God did raise Pharaoh up, okay? So it's not like we're saying that God didn't, you know, that the words are not true or anything like that. But in what sense did God raise Pharaoh up? That's the thing that we're talking about. Yes, God did raise Pharaoh up, but he didn't raise him up in the Calvinistic sense in uh, that you know, I, I've created Pharaoh to be this evil, wicked, bad guy, and he's going to be my punching bag, and I'm going to make him look bad, and I'm going to grind his face in the dirt and stuff and, and all that. That's not at all what it's talking about. Okay? And what's interesting, too, is like, you know, a lot of things, like the Bible says, you know, every fact can be confirmed with two or three witnesses or whatever. I don't personally know of any other Bible characters or whatever that, you know, it talks about, you know, that God prepared them from birth or something or in their mother's womb to be evil you know it says that god 
prepared David from his mother's womb, you know, to serve him or whatever, yeah. whatever kind of way. Well, but he, it, it, but I, I think if God is going to err on calling someone and creating them for a purpose, it's going to be for his, it's going to be for holiness yeah. because he's holy. He can't, he can't contradict his own character. And, and just like it says in James, God doesn't tempt anyone right. to evil. Right. And that's the thing with Psalm 139 is lots of Calvinists quote that, you know, God, before any of my days were you know before i was born you have already numbered all my days the thing about that is is psalm 139 is a psalm it's like a song right you can't get doctrine from a psalm right it's like if i take a song and i sing this song about my wife has hair like gold and her eyes are like diamonds you can't say that my wife's hair is made out of gold and she's got rocks in her eyes right can understand meaning from that yes exactly and so again he's trying to paint a picture and so the whole thing is is be careful about taking something like that and, and making doctrine out of it in the hebrews 5 last place verse 1 it says for every high peace taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to god in order to offer up both gifts and sacrifices for sins he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. No one takes this honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself. And I think it's really awesome because it's saying that because of that Jesus learned through his weaknesses, right? It says, uh, verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. So also Christ, in verse 5, did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Look in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up pro both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because, he was, uh, because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So even Jesus himself, he learned obedience. It wasn't something that was pre-programmed into him. It wasn't something that, well, you know, he's on, he's a train on a track and he can't derail. It wasn't that at all. And again, if you read the scriptures, Jesus was suffered everything just like we, we do and yet was without sin. And so this is the God that we serve. And to me, it makes him more glorious because he trusts, he created mankind and, and basically trusted man to choose him, right? And he, he didn't, he's not a micromanager and he's not someone that raise it for, raises people up to be wicked so that he can punish them, right? So...